I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. My name is Taylor Sparks, and I'm a professor of material science and engineering at the University of Utah. And I'm joined, well, I'm joined virtually this week by my co-host, Andrew Falkowski. Andrew, where on earth are you? I'm down in College Station at Texas A&M University. I'm doing a bit of a research exchange down here. Yeah, for those that aren't familiar with the REU program, it's a research experience for undergrads. Um, You should check these out. It's a great way to leave your university and get paid to go do research at another place. Andrew's going to be working with Professor Raimundo Aroyave, who's an expert in machine learning, which is what I do as well. So I'm excited for him to go and learn things and come back and teach our group anything new that he learns. Mm -hmm. And we'll definitely be sure to do an episode on it when I come back as well. Yeah. So for those that aren't familiar with... um, Texas is this your first time there like what's your first impression um it's hot and humid <laughs> uh, being someone who's lived in Idaho and Utah for most of my life coming down here and walking outside and instantly just sweating was definitely an interesting experience and I'm not sure I've fully adjusted yet well I, I that sounds amazing actually a little bit of warmth isn't so bad uh, is it pretty I, cold there in Utah you know, we've had the second wettest winter on record. It's crazy. Or May, I mean. The second wettest May on record. It's unreal. Just rain all the time. So enjoy Jeez. that warm weather. I did take my research group canyoneering. You missed out on that. So we'll have to do that again when we get back. Yeah, I saw some of those pictures. That looked really fun. I thought the uh, the part where you guys were climbing in between those canyon walls and the spiders came out to check you out. That was... Oh, dude, the stuff of nightmares. They go like one inch past your face. It's just the stuff of nightmares. They looked huge. Oh, yeah. They're uh, called cellar spiders. Anyways, but uh, so <laughs> on to the episode. Um, this week we or this month, we've got an exciting episode. It's really on the history of modern biomaterials or rather the history of artificial organs, which, you know, in the year 2019, when you hear about somebody getting an artificial organ, it doesn't sound that crazy. I mean, we all heard of like an artificial heart and things like that. But there was a time when none of that was realistic at all. It was all science fiction. And it started with the kidney, right? So, Andrew, what on earth do kidneys do? Well, these are extremely vital. They serve three main functions within the body. So first, they try to remove waste, harmful toxins, or any sort of imbalances within the blood. They maintain our fluid levels and make sure everything's working properly and everything's in balance. And with that, they also balance the electrolyte levels within our blood and our body. And, you know, through all the, through evolution, um, we said that these have become over-engineered to be extremely functional to the point where we could only have about 10% of our kidney, but it'd still be able to function properly without us noticing any symptoms. That's pretty amazing. So... Even though we're massively over-engineered uh, when it comes to kidney function, kidney disease or, you know, which is when your kidneys start to fail and they lose function, we call this chronic kidney disease, it impacts a ton of people, like a ton, a ton. Uh, right now, there's about 661,000 Americans who suffer from chronic kidney disease of some sort or another. 
and fully 468,000 of these are on dialysis, which is what we're going to talk about in this episode is the birth of dialysis. Um, while another 193,000, I've actually had a functioning kidney transplant. Overall, the population, your odds of having to deal with chronic kidney disease at some point in your life is about 14%. And this takes up about 6% of the entire Medicare budget. So this is a big deal. And it's pretty bad if you get it. The survival rates are not good. After five years, it's 35%. After three years, it's 55%. Or in other words, you're worse off uh, with this than you are with cancer, cardiovascular disease, or even diabetes. And most of the time, um, or at least more recently, we've seen a combination. Usually cardiovascular diseases or diabetes often lead to kidney issues, and so they come sort of compounded. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, seeing all these numbers of how many people are affected, it really puts into perspective how devastating this would be back when there, we had no treatments for it. Yeah, that's exactly the thing. I and mean, we're going to dive into some of the treatments in a minute, but can you imagine back when, you know, before we had dialysis around, it was basically a death sentence. Like you would not live. It was a matter of days or weeks. Once your kidney stopped functioning, you are, you're dead, essentially. You, you're not going to live long at all. And yet now... You can live, you know, you can extend at least three, four, five years in many cases or longer, which is a pretty amazing, you know, thing that we've been able to do. Mm -hmm. And this might be worth pointing out later, um, but it is important to sort of understand that the dialysis or these artificial kidneys that they use in order to, you know, treat people with these kidney diseases are meant to be temporary. Usually the best solution is to get a transplant. Um, and so with our current technology, we really can't keep people on them for an extended period of time. It's meant to be a temporary thing while they wait for the transplant. Yeah. My, my grandpa just passed away from kidney failure. And I think that from the time he started dialysis to the time that he passed away, it was about four years and he was pretty old. And there was many other challenges he was facing, but I'm grateful that I had those additional four years with him. That was um, a, a medical marvel that I had the additional time to spend with my grandpa before he passed. Um, so let's go way, way back. Right. Um, we're going to be talking about biomaterials and we're going to start from the very beginning. But before we do that, we should first recognize what kidneys do. And you summed it up, right? Really kidneys are all about removing waste products. And that's going to be things like urea, lactic acid, and excess water in our system. But it's also going to balance the pH and balance electrolytes, right? Now, anytime you're doing that, when you're pulling things out of a fluid or maybe putting things back in, we're talking about filters. And engineers have been using filters to remove impurities or pathogens from water, for example, at least back to like the third or fourth century AD, they found these ancient Egyptian texts where they actually describe how water could be run through sand or gravel. And as it would come out on the other end, it would be much more pure. And what's crazy to me is that is still today a really important part of how we purify our water. I mean, we do other things. There's typically a chlorine treatment or a UV light treatment, but that step where they run it through a media like sand is still done today. So um, you know, engineers figured this out a long time ago that it was possible to clean things out by passing it through something, but it wasn't until much, much later that they started to do it for blood. And we have a special word for that. Uh, it's called dialysis. And do you want to explain what the root of that word is or yeah, where so, it comes from? Yeah. So it's Greek, like a lot of these words, uh, it's dia, which means through and lysis or loosening. And so it really means like dissolution. It's the way of, you know, taking something out of solution. You're, you're pulling something out. 
Um, and to do it, you have to have something called a membrane. So before we dive into the history of these things, we're going to introduce a few key material science concepts, and that's going to have to do with what we call fluid transport or mass transport, okay? So a membrane, that's simply a barrier that's going to permit some things to pass while stopping others. Sometimes we call these semi-permeable membranes, right? It's permeable to some things but not others. Um, so these membranes, we've been working with them as engineers for quite a while, but there's some key questions that you should ask yourself. First off, you know, how quickly is something going to be able to trespass through this membrane to get from one side to the other? And how effectively are they actually going to be at filtering something? Um, so we have some fundamental equations and concepts in material science that address these. First off, what drives the transport of ions or molecules across the, the membrane? Well, it can happen two ways. If it's spontaneous, meaning it happens all on its own and you don't have to input energy into the system, then we call that passive transport. But you can also put energy into the system and then it's going to happen by driving it with that energy. So this is, for example, how our body moves things across membranes. We use enzymes, for example, that can move ions across the membrane, but it takes energy to do so. When it comes to kidneys uh, and how they filter the blood, we would like to replace it with passive transport, meaning it's going to transport all on its own. So what would be the driving force for that, Andrew? Uh, in many cases, this is, well, it's driven by entropy. Um, and entropy, and it's done by increasing that entropy. And increasing entropy is simply a means of increasing the amount of disorder in the final state. And this is pretty much just the second law of thermodynamics. Um, and so you might ask, how does the system become more disordered? You know, what is entropy and how do I visualize it? And what you can really, what you can see is across the membrane, you'll see a difference in concentration. So on one side, you might have water that has salt in it. And on the other side, you might have just pure water. The difference in concentration of salt across the membranes will drive the salt to transition across the membrane to try and balance that out and create, you know, an equal or reach equilibrium on either side of the membrane. Yeah, it always seems a little counterintuitively like, oh, it wants to equal out. How is that more disordered? But it's helpful to think of like the water and the salt are two different things. And when you start out, you've got no salt on one side and only water on the other side, right? And so it's going to want to mix until they're both sort of mixed together and then it becomes more disordered. Okay, in any case, so we've got a driving force for why passive transport could happen. It's that difference in concentration. Okay, so how fast do these things happen? Well, now we're going to introduce a concept called a flux. A flux is the amount of something that moves through the membrane, and it's calculated as the amount per unit area per unit time. That's a flux, right? So it takes into account the area and how long it's, it's going to be transporting. Um, now, there's lots of different ways that we can calculate flux, and the simplest is to assume that the rate or, of the flux is not changing with respect to time. It's a constant rate of ions moving through it. So that's not always a, a fair assumption. Like right when you start something, it might start by, uh, the flux might be really fast at first and then it might slow down. Um, but in any case, if it is constant, then we call that steady state flux, right? Steady state diffusion or permeation. This is all talking about the same thing. So if it is under steady state, meaning again, that that flow is not changing with time, that allows us to model the flux of materials with something called fixed first law, right? So fixed first law, all it says is that the flux of things moving across this membrane, it's going to be proportional to the concentration gradient across the membrane, okay? Now the concentration gradient, you just said it, that's your difference in concentration, but it's going to be divided by the thickness of the, of the membrane. That goes from the difference to a gradient now. 
And then the constant of proportionality is the diffusion coefficient. So the diffusion coefficient, that is simply a measure of how easily some species are able to travel through the host material. Okay. And so it makes sense that small ions, like maybe like a hydrogen ion, that's going to have a really high diffusion coefficient, but really big ions uh, or even big molecules, like say an alcohol, that might have a really slow diffusion coefficient through a given membrane. And so because there's differences in the diffusion coefficient, that might be one reason why you can achieve this semi-permeable membrane. Maybe salt can't go across it, but water can or vice versa. Okay. Um, now, one of the tricky things here is that the concentration of the species that's actually a function of temperature. If you were to squeeze on that liquid on one side, you could change the concentration of the species in the membrane right at that surface. And so concentration is a tricky thing and you want to account for pressure. So because of that, uh, the concentration can be calculated as the pressure multiplied by what's called the sorption equilibrium, equilibrium coefficient. And if we take that sorption equilibrium coefficient and we multiply it by the diffusion coefficient, that gives us a term in material science that we call the permeability. Okay, so the permeability, that's a useful parameter for us because it allows to rewrite fixed first equation as the flux being equal to the negative permeability multiplied by the difference in pressure on either side of a membrane divided by the thickness of the membrane. And that's a useful law. Right, so and now that we've defined what flux is, we can further explain what else can perhaps limit the or prevent things from crossing over the membrane or how we can speed up the rate at which things cross over the membrane. Um, the first of which is going to be the membrane geometry. So remember that flux is the amount of material per area per time. Um, it can be difficult to, well, I don't think we really can change the amount of time that it's going to take because we can't control that, but we can control the area. And so when you're looking at a membrane, you take a cross-sectional area and it has a certain thickness. So if we can reduce that thickness, we can increase the amount of flux across the membrane and increase the rate of transport. And so... Historically, if we're looking, um, thicknesses of membranes that are used in various applications have been getting thinner and thinner to try and increase the rate of transport or even decrease the rate of transport if they want it to happen over a certain number of time or have a very controlled flow. The next is going to be convection. And so a lot of times when you think about convection, you can think about it with food or a hot drink. You usually blow on it to introduce cold air so that it can take more of that heat away. However, in the, in the context of mass transport or transporting things across a membrane, um, it's referring to pressure. Taylor gave the analogy where if you're squeezing on something, you're introducing more pressure on that side, and that will cause the rate of transport across the membrane to increase. One of the final things you can really do to, or rather, what makes a, a membrane effective or can increase the rate at which things transport across it or can be affected by it is adsorption. And this is not to be confused with absorption with a B, this is adsorption with a D. And essentially this is coming from the word adhere. So when a liquid or some fluid containing molecules or ions or something moves over a membrane, these molecules can adhere to the membrane and be removed from the liquid that way. Okay, so with that background in place, we are now ready to dive into the history of modern dialysis, which again, is really the history of modern artificial organs. So this goes all the way back to about the 1860s, right? 1861, you've got this Scottish chemist named Thomas Graham, and he was really the first one that we can think of uh, who actually tried to you know, tackle this problem of dialysis. People knew that the kidneys were losing their function over time and that we needed a new way to separate the toxins from the blood. 
And so he chose to use a pig bladder as his semi-permeable membrane, and he was the one to actually coin the term dialysis for the movement of small particles from one fluid to another, right? This didn't work very well. This had some severe limitations. And about 50 years later, now we're in 1913, you've got Abel, Roundtree, and Turner, and they were sort of some of the first to actually remove substances from blood. Now, this wasn't in humans. This was done in dogs. But they were able to remove unwanted substances by flowing that blood through collodion tubes. Andrew, what on earth is collodion? There's a material called soloidin. I actually forget where it comes from, but it is essentially cellulose nitrate dissolved in ether. Anyways, so they take this soloidin and they mix it with an ethanol, and that forms this clear gelatinous liquid. Uh, and this is the colloidian. This clear liquid is then poured into glass tubes, and it's allowed to sit until the ether evaporates completely. Um, the tube is then submerged in water, and this replaces the alcohol with a water, and the collodion film that is eventually used um, begins to shrink, and it peels off of the glass tube, and that's how they get these extremely brittle tubes that are semi-permeable. Dude, this is... As you're describing that, that sounds very complicated um so i and i guess that's why this was like the big challenge is like there were so many different steps there and each one of those could introduce variability that it's not surprising that this was a difficult thing to be reproducible with and that was some of the real problems they had uh first off it's brittle right this is a brittle thing that they're making it had a ton of preparation prior to usage and then it still wasn't necessarily very you know consistent each time that you made it so what other challenges did they run into? I think one of the biggest ones is that there were collodion tubes that were made and used in membrane applications. They weren't the first to realize that this material had those properties. However, all of the ones that were produced for industrial applications or any applications really were all a lot smaller than the ones that they actually needed, which forced them to make all of them themselves. And that's where we get a lot of size differences because they, def they definitely didn't have the manufacturing equipment to get consistent results. So they'd have tubes with deformities, abnormalities, or different sizes. And so it was really hard to get consistency. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So clearly they were doing something though. Like they got some initial things to look like it was starting to work, granted on dog's blood, but they ran into a problem. And the problem is that blood and, you know, it's actually by design, blood will coagulate. And it does that by design to stop us from bleeding to death after an injury. And the problem is that if you've got this thick coagulated blood, which we call hemostasis when your blood undergoes this, this effect, well, that's going to plug up your dialysis membrane and it's going to prevent any further filtering effect. Now, fortunately, nature has given us a pretty great solution for keeping blood from coagulating. In fact, why don't you consider this clip from a 1986 classic movie? Vern, there's something on your neck. Yeah, right. I'm not falling for that one, the chance. No, Vern. There is something on your neck. It's a leech. Leech it! Oh, my God! <laughs> and they're covered in leeches. So, yeah. <laughs> so, if, if you haven't seen the movie Stand By Me, it's based on a Stephen King novel. As the troop of boys are going through a river, they've got these leeches. And if you've seen leeches, when you pull them off, it actually bleeds like crazy. And the reason it does that is because leeches, along with other, uh, there's actually a name for these creatures, 
hematophages, meaning blood-eating parasites, you know, anything that eats blood, we call it hematophage. So leeches and some other creatures, they've actually evolved a hemobiochemical solution that actually causes your blood to not coagulate. So these blood thinners, as they're often called, uh, they allow the things like a leech to eat the host's blood a little bit more easily. So, you know, our scientists, uh, Abel, Roundtree, and Turner, they realized that if they add some blood thinner, something to prevent the blood from coagulating, and in this case, they used harudin, which is the peptide extracted actually from leech saliva, uh, it turned out to be a way that they could prevent coagulation and show that dialysis, in principle, was possible. But there's a problem that, you know, the, all the harudin that they were getting was coming from Hungary, and if you notice the date at 1913, we're right at the start of World War One. Is in the, in the next few years, and as soon as World War One broke out, they no longer had any heroin. Right, and come 1915, we're right in the middle of World War One, and we have another attempt at creating a dialysis filter or creating a better one, for that matter. So 1915, um, it's on the German side. We have a German doctor named Georg Haas. Uh, and he was moved by the large number of young soldiers who were dying from kidney failure. And you know, at the time, he didn't have any tools or treatment that could help them. And so he was sort of helpless as a doctor. And so he starts attempting research. And um, at first he used the... Okay, he, so he starts using hirudin, um coming from the leeches. And due to the World War I restrictions, he has to find a new... Um, anticoagulant or something, some sort of blood thinner. And so what he ends up using is a molecule called heparin. And this is an, another blood thinning molecule. It functions similar to heridin, but this one's actually found in dog livers. Um, so once again, nature has given us a solution to this problem. So Haas's, dialy Haas's dialyzing apparatus isn't very powerful, and it only does so much to actually remove any of the toxins that are in blood. And so after years of trying this, um, he starts to lose steam on the project and a lot of his supporters from the government or private donors also start to give up. And so he ends up sort of canceling and stopping his experiments in 1928. So in the years following, there was continued work, right? And what's interesting since we're material scientists was their movement to other materials as this membrane, right? They started trying all sorts of things. There was chicken intestines, there was gold beater skin. There's a calf appendix. Um, around the 1920s, you know, it became common for sausage casings to be made out of cellophane. And as that happened, cellophane begot, you know, it began to be manufactured at a large scale, which made it very, you know, repeatable, very accessible to scientists. This actually had better mechanical properties, and it was nice to get it to specifications. So this started being used, and they found that, you know, it was impermeable to proteins, but very permeable to proteos. And proteos, that's simply the things that, you, as you're breaking down food in your digestive system, as you break down proteins, they first turn into proteos before they break down further. So this looked like a, a relatively promising material. And this is where Willem Johan Kolff, uh, you know, who is now known as the father of artificial organs, this is where he comes into the story.
So who was this guy, Andrew? Right, so Willem Kolf, he's born in 1911 in Leiden, Netherlands, and he's born to a famous doctor. And when he was a child, he actually wanted to be a zoologist. Um, but at the time, um, there were, you know, this was on the cusp of, well, this was in the middle of World War I, um, and Europe was still in quite a tumultuous state. And so there weren't really any zoos or really need for those sorts of jobs. And so through his work and being related to his father, he worked in a number of medical facilities. And after observing um, his father being unable to help some patients, he decided to devote his life to being a doctor as well. And so in 1935, he graduates from the University of Leiden studying medicine. And when he sort of begins, not necessarily practicing, but volunteering at clinics uh, in his local area, he has this 22-year-old patient who comes through dying of renal failure, um, which is a kidney disease. And be, you know, out of helplessness, this is what prompts him to begin studying and developing the first artificial kidney that could be used on humans successfully. So 1938 now, Kolf is a volunteer assistant in the Department of Medicine at the University of Groningen. And uh, he decides to contact Robert Brinkman, who is a professor of biochemistry, who at the time had a lot of access to cellophane, which was the new sort of novel material that could be used for dialysis. Um, at this point, the war is starting to heat up, and in 1940, Germany invades the Netherlands and seizes control and occupies it. Um, Kolf sort of fearing that he wouldn't be able to practice his medicine or he'd have heavy restrictions, decides to move to a small town in the middle of the Netherlands called Campen. There he contacts Hendrik Burke, and he's the director of the Campen Enamel Works, so he has industrial connections and facilities, and they begin to collaborate on the construction of the first artificial kidney. All right, this, this thing is too cool, dude. Like, the first kidney dialysis machine, I'm told that he made this out of what a lot... You've got written here laundry tubs orange juice cans, a wooden drum, the sausage casings, and electric motor. Like, tell me what on earth that's about. That's that's like how I would build things. Like, totally what you have around, prototyping being scrappy. Uh, what did he actually build? What did this thing look like? Yeah, so at the time, um, resources were incredibly scarce, so it was really just taking anything that he possibly could. But when he put it all together, essentially what we have is a, you can think of a wooden rotating drum. Um, so a cylinder that's rotating and wrapped around this is the, is the cellophane or the sausage casings, our, our, our dialysis membrane, um, wrapped around it in sort of like a helix sort of formation. And what would end up happening is the blood would flow through this membrane, but because they didn't really have access to any fancy pumps or anything or to sort of drive it and they wanted to keep it in the dialyzing solution. And what they would end up and doing. What is, is the would... dialyzing solution? Sorry to interrupt. What's the dialyzing solution? So this is diacylate. This is going to be present in pretty much every um, dialysis filter, and this contains a low concentration of the toxins that are in the body, and then a high concentration of those electrolytes yep. and pH balancing elements that your blood needs. So, so across so... the membrane, you've got things like urea exiting the blood. And you've got electrolytes that your body needs passing the opposite direction through the membrane to enter into the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. Right. Gotcha. And it was right, just so, and it was just too slow without a pump or what? Um, 
Yeah, so I mean, they need to figure out a way to always keep it submerged within the diacylate, but then also move it along because you can't, you know, remove the blood from someone and then leave it out of them for too long. You, the idea is that you pull it out and then you put it back in after it's been filtered. So the sort of genius behind this is that the blood, if it's wrapped around here, would always go towards the lowest portion or want to flow from gravity towards the lowest point of that helix. And so what they would end up doing is they would just rotate the drum, and because it's spiraled around, the water would always stay submerged in the diacylate, but it would move through the tube from gravity and then be able to come out on the other side. That's cool. I think we'll try and put a picture of this on our Instagram page. So if you haven't followed us, check out at materialism.podcast on Instagram, and we'll try and have a schematic of what this is since it's a little tricky to visualize. Mm -hmm. So in any case, they build this device, and they start treating people. And it's amazing, over this two-year span of when they started trying to treat people, the first 15 people that they treated, they all died. It was not successful on any of them. Now, these people were going to die anyway, so it's not like they were like testing you know, inhumanely. These were people that had kidney disease, and they weren't able to save any of them. But then, in 1945, Kolf successfully treats his first patient. This lady was 67 years old. She had been like in a coma with renal failure from hemodialysis. And after an 11-hour treatment of hemodialysis, she regains consciousness, and she lives for another seven years before eventually dying of something totally unrelated to kidney failure. So this was the first instance where, holy smokes, we built an artificial organ that actually saved somebody who would have otherwise died for sure. So in the years following, like this was a breakthrough. This was a major breakthrough. Um, people tried to make this work better, right? If you remember, she had an 11-hour hemodialysis treatment, right? Nowadays, dialysis is much shorter than that. I think it's still a couple hours, but if you can bring the time down, that would be great. And to bring the time down, we need to maximize flux, the flux of toxins out and the flux of electrolytes in, right? And so if you go back to our flux equation, that's the amount per unit area per time, right? So if you want to bring time down and you want to maximize flux, what else can you do? Well, one thing you could do is increase the surface area. So in the years that followed through the 60s, you started seeing really innovative changes in terms of engineering design, not necessarily in the materials. They were using a lot of these same cellophane tubes, but they were changing the design. Rather than passing the blood through this big, long serpentine path, uh, which is the sausage casing, they said, well, what if we make a bunch of really small hollow fibers, right? And we pass the blood through each one of those, and those fibers are in direct con in contact with the dialysate solution. Then you could do it at a much faster rate because your area is so much larger. And what I think is really cool is that around this time in 1967, you know, Kolf, who had previously immigrated to the United States to work at the Cleveland Clinic, in 1967, he comes here to the University of Utah, you know, where I work, uh, to direct the Division of Artificial Organs and the Institute of Biomedical Engineering, which is a really exciting thing because when he was at Utah, he did a bunch of other amazing things, like the first uh, artificial heart, for example, was done right here at Utah. What I thought was really fascinating was up until really the 1970s, they're just using regenerated cellulose um, as cellophane for all these dialysis filters. We don't see a lot of development of new materials. Um, in fact, cellulose being plant-based and being used in a lot of uh, the textile industry, a lot of textile manufacturers actually became, or textile fiber manufacturers rather, actually were the ones who commercially developed dialysis filters. You got um, a couple, sort of the big name ones were Cuprofan and Bemberg. These were essentially the exact same thing. They had a couple additives added to them, um, and those came out of Germany and Japan. It wasn't until 1969 
that you saw the development of the first polymer membrane, and that's developed by Rhone Palenque in France, and that used acrylonitrile. So by a polymer, uh, you mean synthetic polymer, right? Because all these other things are polymers, and this is the first one where yes. they actually totally synthesize something new to see how it would how it would perform. Yeah, my mistake. And a lot of that came out of a desire for better biocompatibility. And so when the body's interacting with a material, not every the body will react differently. And so when we ha when we're using material science in an application that has to do with health or a way that's going to interact with someone's body, the biocompatibility aspect is another thing that has to be considered. And so for instance, using this regenerated cellu cellulose, the cellophane, we saw something called transient leukopenia. And essentially, this is a dramatic decrease in the amount of white blood cells that are in the blood. And this is known as a bioincompatible event. And it's a really important one because if someone's white blood cells start decreasing, that puts that patient at risk of being more susceptible to infections and diseases. And so the reason for this is that the cellophane has what's called hydroxyl groups in its backbone. And these hydroxyl groups are closely related to the uh, undesired complement activation. The complement activation refers to that decrease in white blood cells. And so over the years, um, prior to the invention of these synthetic polymers, um, what they would do to try to prevent this is they would add acetate groups um, to the backbone to try and replace these hydroxyl groups. And these sort of semi-synthesized cellulosic membranes, they not only had better biocompatibility, but they actually had higher solubilities for solutes and water transport. And many of them are actually still on the market today. That's super cool. And what's fascinating is that we've spent just decades and decades trying to make a better membrane, and they've gotten a lot better. But it's interesting that there's still some really fundamental materials challenges that we face. So in my own research group, a couple of years ago with one of my uh, our master's students, Patrick Nichols, we worked on this problem, where if you talk to anybody who's actually undergone dialysis treatment, uh, one of the first things they'll tell you is just how drained and awful they feel after the treatment. And so that doesn't make sense. You're thinking like, oh, well, they just cleaned all the toxins out of your blood and they filled it full of electrolytes. So why are you feeling awful? Well, what happens is that there's something known as protein energy wasting. So what happens is that the holes in the dialysis membrane are too small for big things like bl red blood cells to go through, which is good, but they're big enough for some important things to escape. So a lot of the building blocks of proteins are actually able to be removed under, and we don't want that to happen, but that we do remove them. And uh, there's been some studies by Bonani and Carrero. They actually found that this was associated with a higher death risk you feel it's not just that you feel crappy, but it can actually lead to mortality, right? So people started investigating this, and in recent years, the last 20 years, it's been investigated quite a lot, and they found that you know protein and muscle loss are pretty severe in people that have dialysis treatment. So Gil, for example, he showed that high flux dialysis treatments lose three times more amino acids than low flux treatments, where again high flux might be like a higher surface area or using it under pressure to make that filter faster. Lowry found that you have to eat much more protein afterwards, and if you do, then you can increase survival. So literally, because you're you're losing all these proteins that into the dialysate, if you just increase your protein intake, you can make up for it. Um, Meyer found that you know if you alter the fluid, that you can try and change the amount of proteins that are lost. And people really started looking into this. What I found interesting is this quote by a doctor who actually was a uh, practitioner of dialysis, and this is what he had to say 
Uh, he says, on February 1st, 2007, I entered the world of in-center hemodialysis. The physician was now the patient and not a very happy patient. Life suddenly was no longer good. I had to deal with fatigue, excruciating headaches, especially after the long weekend between dialysis treatments, mild disequilibrium symptoms, and of course, large, very large needles three times a week. So, you know, we can do a lot to make life better if we weren't losing all of these proteins. Now, some people have looked at protein replacements, right? This high note and coworkers, they found that about six to nine grams of amino acids are lost each time, but that infusions can help make up for these losses, but you're still going to lose between 16 and 80%. Okay, so Rafino and coworkers, they found that when protein intake gets increased, that it also increases the phosphate levels dangerously. So it's not just this easy thing that you know you're losing amino acids and you can just make up for them. It's tricky to get it balanced just right. The best thing would be to just simply redesign the system in a way that you lost fewer of these uh, amino acids. And they've done that on the dialys dial dialyzer side. These membranes, as you've been describing, have been really engineered to try and lose as few proteins as possible. In our work, we found that actually you're losing a ton of proteins to the tubing itself, right? So these amino acids, these are your precursors to proteins. And we found that proteins, uh, these are our biopolymers. They make up most of your body and they have reactive sites for interactions. And so what's interesting is if you have your tubing, which is typically made out of polyvinyl chloride, that um, if you have these amino acids, they're actually adhering to the PVC. And even though it's not harming your body in that there's no um, negative, they're biocompatible, it's still that they're adhering to it and therefore you're losing them in your bloodstream. So one of the experiments that we did in recent years is we just decided to replace the PVC with tubing made out of Teflon, so polytetrafluoroethylene, using Teflon tubing uh, because of the high smoothness and its difference in hydropho uh, hydrophobicity, we found that we lost, you know, far, far less. For example, after four hours, we found that there was about 1% loss due to adhesion on the Teflon tubes compared to the 12% protein loss on PVC. So, there's actually a lot of work that could be done in the future, I think, in making not just the dialyzer better in terms of materials, but the entire system and all the materials which come in contact with the blood. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely a hard balance because adsorption is incredibly, you know, it, it can be harmful in that we can lose a lot of proteins that way, but it's also really useful for selectively removing some toxins. Yeah. Other challenges to consider, I mentioned earlier that a lot of times kidney failure is compounded with other um, diseases or health issues such as diabetes and these patients have different blood than the sort of the blood of non-diabetes patients and so different factors have to be considered when you're creating these membranes and there are different health concerns involved at all and so a lot of times there has to be a lot more care taken into the design and almost tailoring the membranes that we're using and the biomaterials involved to the specific patient. Yeah, that's interesting. So instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, you can actually get this customized, you know, personalized medicine, as they call it, where you can get, you know, individual treatment that makes the most sense for your individual case. Mm -hmm. That would be the, that'd be the ideal solution, but I mean... Given sort of the state that the, tech, that the technology's in right now, we're definitely not there, and there's definitely a lot of problems and hurdles that need to be overcome. Okay, well, we really hope you've enjoyed the, the episode this month. Stay tuned. Next month, we will have an episode on commercialization again. 
And if you'd like to learn more about the things that we talked about in this episode, we pulled from a ton of different research articles, and we're going to go ahead and make those available in our show notes, and you can check them out and read a little bit more if you're interested. As always, if you've got questions or feedback, we would love for you just to send us an email. You can do so at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. And then go ahead and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, anywhere you find your podcast, we're there. If you leave us a review, that's actually great for us because it helps other people find this show since materialism's podcasts are not common. Finally, check out our Instagram page at materialism.podcast and connect with us so we can know what other materials you want to learn about. And as always, a special thanks to Colobite and Alphabot. They create awesome music and we appreciate them letting you use it for the podcast. Okay, we'll see you guys next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. <laughs>